excited for my message today. Actually, I'm a little surprised. My message today is on spiritual formation, and it's about dealing with your past. And I'm surprised that I'm doing a message on dealing with your past, because if you look at the church calendar, exactly a year ago on July 11, 2021, my message was called Dealing With Your Past. And a year later, I'm doing the same message. Well, it's not the same message. I have a little new material here. Part of my message is pulled from another message. But I just felt God really putting on my heart to do a message on dealing with your past. Specifically, what happened is I was uh, listening to a podcast earlier this week. And the man on the podcast was talking about... um, about uh, the challenges that he's had with pornography over his 12-year period that he started when he was a young boy and the challenges that he went through with unwanted behavior and then following how he went through years of restoration and progress and how the Lord restored his life. So I was listening to this man, well, he was a young man when he had his challenges and now he's in his 40s, kind of talking about what life was like for him during the midst of his uh, addiction and then talking about how the Lord restored in his life and what his life was like now. And so towards the end of the podcast, the announcer, the host of the podcast said to him, said, what is the best part of the freedom that you're now experiencing? And without even missing a beat, the guy quickly said, the best part is that I don't feel guilt or shame or condemnation anymore. He said, the very best part is now I can go to church without feeling guilt and shame. And then he shared for a while that during his journey and his struggle that often he would avoid going to church, he would avoid community because he felt too guilty. He felt like he didn't belong. He didn't feel like he should be there. And I don't think that surprises any of us how people sometimes feel like I can't be at church because I feel too much shame. But yet when he said that, for some reason, hearing it again really bothered me. It bothered me because what the man really needed more than anything in his life was a community, yet the guilty experience, he just stayed away. And it made me sad as I listened to him because I thought, how many people are actually experiencing that all around us? See, we talk a lot about why don't some Christians go to church and why do some followers of Jesus not go to church? And there's a lot of different answers. But I think sometimes people don't go because they're feeling guilt or shame, or anxiety that they don't want to show up. If you're here last week, I was talked about how three of the strongest trees in the world and the tallest trees are sequoias and redwood and cypress trees. These three trees are part of a tree family that these trees grow in excess of 400 feet. Some of these trees are, you know, 20 feet wide and they grow in different parts of the world. And one thing that these trees all have in common is that in order for them to be strong and to grow that tall, they have to grow in groves. That these trees grow outside of a grove, they'll never get to 400 feet. They won't even get to 100 feet because what will happen is a storm will come and to blow those trees over. And see, what was sad to me about this man dealing with his unwanted behavior is that he was like a tree that was trying to grow outside of his grove. He had every intention to be like the other trees, but as long as he was outside of his grove, he would never grow. know that the most dangerous place for a redwood tree is to be outside of a grove. It's no different than a person. No, the most dangerous for a pers- place for a person to be is outside of community. And so it's important for us that we, rem- we look at stories like this young man and remember that is what a lot of people are dealing with. See, we want to be a church for people that are feeling are struggling. We want to be a church for people that don't feel welcomed. 
We need to be a church for people that deal with a lot of isolation and guilt and shame. See, Jesus' vision for a church is that we would always be a community of peace in a world that's going through a lot of war. Jesus' vision for the church is that we would be a shelter for people, that people could live in a canopy of trees and find safety and security. See, right now, I've told you for the last couple weeks, right now what we're doing as a church and as a community, we're reimagining the kind of church that we want to be in a post-COVID world. We're spending a lot of time saying, what do we need to look like now as we are on the other side of uh, COVID? And we talk a lot about what do we want our culture to look like? What do we want the values of Lake Effect Church to be? Because we need to really lean hard into our values and into our culture because our values and our culture is what people on the outside actually need. And our values and our culture will draw people to Lake Effect Church because that's are the needs that they have. You can think of our culture as more of what we exchange for people for their isolation and for their loneliness and for their burnt outness. See, there's a lot of people that are really hurt. There's a lot of people who didn't do well during COVID. There's a lot of people that are really struggling right now in the church and outside of the church. There's so much anger and frustration in our world right now. I think all of us are a little surprised at all the violence that we continue to see on TV and in the media and among, even among our friends. There's so many people that are dealing with unwanted behavior. And so many people are looking for solutions in isolation, and it's never going to happen. We need to be a church for the people that don't feel like they belong. We need to be a church that is aware of the needs that people have so we can meet their needs. When I was listening to this man share a story, he got towards, he's talked about his unwanted behavior. And he was talking about how during his journey that God did bring him, he became a professional counselor, a doctor in psychology, and now he treats people with a lot of similar problems. He said what he had to learn during this process is that his unwanted behavior was not his problem. That the unwanted behavior that he was participating was not his problem. Instead, his unwanted behavior became his solution. That the things that he was doing actually became his solution. There's a little play on words there because what this man was saying that really his unwanted behavior was not his problem at all, but he thought that was his problem. Instead, there was something a whole lot deeper that was going on inside of him that was really his problem, and his unwanted behavior became a solution because that's the way he found to comfort himself. And so often as a church and a community, we're swatting at what we appear to be the problem and we're not going a whole lot deeper to really understand what is really going on here. There's just a principle in life, whatever you focus on, you're going to eventually hit. That's why they teach people that are cross-country skiing, if there's a tree in front of you that you're worried about hitting, don't focus on the tree, focus on the path around it because if you focus on the tree, you're going to hit it. I cannot even begin to tell you how many snakes I've ridden over on my bike when I'm riding on my mountain bike. Why? I am scared of snakes. I'm petrified of snakes. 
I see a snake on the trail. I don't care if that snake is 20 feet away from me. I don't care if there's like a 400-yard runway to the side of it. I can go around it. I get fearful of that snake, and I hit it every single time. I've never hit a bunny on the trail. I haven't hit a squirrel. I haven't hit a fox. I haven't hit a mouse. I hit every single snake because suddenly what's in me, I'm worried. That's my problem. That's my problem. I get scared and panic. I can't even see the path around it. That's what's happening to a lot of people in our culture. They're so focused on what they think is the problem in their life, they're running into it time and time again. We need to be a church that helps people understand what's really going on in their life. We need to be a church and a community that we sit with people to help them understand what is the antecedent to their problem? What is causing them to trigger them that leads to the behavior that they don't want? That's our job. That's our role. That's what we get to do. See, Henry Nouwen has this famous quote that he said years ago that I love. He said, The great temptation is to use our obvious failures and disappointments in our lives to convince ourselves that we're really not worthy of being loved. Because what do we have to show for ourselves? That's such a good insight that he has. That the greatest temptation is to use our failures and disappointments in our lives to convince ourselves that we're really not worthy of being loved. That's a lot of people in the world around us. They've convinced themselves that they're not really worthy to be loved. And so the rest of their life, they're acting like people that aren't very loved. A lot of us experience that. Even as followers of Jesus, there's days that you feel like, am I really loved? Does God really have the best for me? Is God really looking out for me? It's a very real struggle, no matter where you are in relationship with God. There can be days that you wonder and you struggle because the world is a hard and a difficult place to be. And Jesus even warned us that there would be troubles and there would be obstacles, even if you are a devoted follower of Jesus. So one of the scriptures that we tend to go to as follower of Jesus when life is hard is Romans 8, verse 28. I think we know that verse clearly. And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purposes. We quote that verse a lot when life is difficult. It goes on to say, For God knew his people in advance, and he chose them to become like his son so that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And having chosen them, he called them to come to him. And having called them, he gave them right standing with himself. And having given them right standing, he called them his glory. See, so often as Christians, we know this first part of this verse, that God can make all things work together for good for other people. That's our struggle with this verse. Can he really do it for me? Does he want to do it for me? Most people have no problem believing that God could do it for another person. That he could restore somebody else's life, forgive them of their sins, make something out of the mess that they're in. But so often, our biggest struggle is, will he do it for me? Does God really love me? Does God really have compassion for me? Is God really going to restore the mess that I am and give me everything I need? See, so often people in deep crisis are like, I don't think he's going to do it for me. That's why the guy I told you about, he stayed outside of a church because he thought, I got to get better before I go into church because I certainly can't expect God to do anything for me. 
so often we have a conflict between our theological belief and our functional belief. Our theological view is we know what the Word says, we know what the Bible says, we believe it to be true, but when it comes to ourself, our functional belief, we're like, I don't think so. I don't think this is really going to work out. So often the negative experiences that we have in our life drive our theology more than anything else. There's that break between our theology and our functional theology. See, instead of enjoying, instead of enjoying the peace that comes from having a good father, we live like kids that are orphans. We live like kids that think we don't really have a good father, that we don't have a good parent. Instead of feeling like children of God, we feel like unwanted orphans. So often, people that feel like orphans, they feel like they don't belong. They feel distant from God. They experience a lot of fear, anxiety, abandonment, and rejection. Some counselors will say that people that develop an orphan spirit or feel like an orphan spirit, quite often they feel like there's a huge void in their life. There's a void in their life, but they're not really sure what it is, and they're not really sure how to fill it. So they can end, spend their life searching for answers, but never finding them. Many people who have experienced the feeling of being an orphan will tell you they grew up with parents who didn't supply their needs or who didn't take care of the needs that they had. And so often they felt neglected. They often they felt like, if I need it, I'm going to have to find it on my own. I can't expect anybody else to help me. I can't expect anybody else to provide for me. I can't expect anybody to really even care what I need because they're so used to disappointment. The truth is, you can have really good parents and still feel like an orphan at times. There's no parents that are absolutely perfect going to supply everything that you need, so it's not uncommon for some kids to even have great parents and grow up feeling like an orphan. Probably the best example in the Bible is the story of the prodigal son. Here this younger boy had a great father, a father that took care of him, wanted the best for his son, but the son rebelled against his father. And you notice when the son came to his senses and wanted to come back home, what did he say to his dad? He said, I don't even want, I'm not even worthy to be a son. Just make me a slave. I'm not worthy to be your son, even if I repent, just make me a slave. And I think that's how many people in the body of Christ are living right now. They're living like a slave when God says, you can be a son or you can be a daughter. But instead we'd feel inadequate. We don't feel worthy to be loved, so we say, no, I'll just be a slave. And God says, I want you to be my child. See, the good thing is Jesus knew that this was going to be a problem. God knew that this would be a very big problem, that people would feel like an orphan. So listen to the language that, that Jesus used in John 14, verse 18. Jesus was telling his disciples that someday he would be leaving them, and he watched his disciples get panicking. Here, these are grown men. These are grown men that had been with Jesus for three years. They've seen the love and compassion of Jesus. They've seen Jesus do miracles. These men could take care of themselves. And Jesus starts talking about he's going to leave someday. And then what does Jesus observe? He observes these men panicking. So Jesus says, no, I will not abandon you as orphans. I will come to you. Jesus knew that even his own disciples struggled feeling like an orphan at times. 
Even the thought of being left alone, they quickly felt like an orphan. So Jesus gives this promise to his disciples, and by extension, he gives it to each and every one of you. He says, I will come for you. I will come for you. You will not have to feel like an abandoned orphan. I will come for you. That's a beautiful promise that Jesus gives, even to adults who are struggling. He says, I'm going to come for you. See, God did more for us on our day of salvation than just save us and give us a life for eternity. On the day of your salvation, God also did something that nobody expected. He adopted you and I as his children. That's a powerful word that God would use the word adoption. I mean, God could have said, I'm going to love you, I'm going to care for you, provide for you. But God used the word adoption to, to communicate something that was radical. Even back in the, that, that first century culture in the Roman Empire, that word adopting is a radical word. And the meaning of the word adoption back 2,000 years ago is incredibly powerful. Listen to what Galatians 4, verse 1 through 7 says about adoption. It says, think of it this way. If a father dies and leaves an inheritance to his young children, those children are not much better off than slaves until they grow up, even though they actually own everything that their father had. They have to obey their guardians until they reach whatever age their father sets. And that's the way it was with us before Christ came. We were like children. We were slaves to the basic spiritual principles of this world. But when the right time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law. God sent him to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law so that he could adopt us as his very own children. And because we are his children, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, prompting us to call out, Abba, Father, now you are no longer a slave, but God's own child. And since you are his child, God made you his heir. That's a powerful scripture. That's a powerful scripture that said the day that you got saved, God filled you with his Holy Spirit and adopted you as his child. I don't think there's a more powerful word that God could have used to communicate his extravagant love for people. This message is important for each of us as individuals because we need to be recipients of being adopted by God. But this is also our message to the world. See, so often we tell people that you have everything that you need in Jesus. That's what actually Galatians 3 about. In Galatians 3, Paul takes time to tell the Galatians church, if you have Jesus, you have every single thing that you need. He tells them clearly that there's nothing else that you could hope for or want because you have Jesus, you have everything. And a lot of us know that. If you've been in church for a while, we'll tell you, you have everything you need, you have Jesus. But in the back of your head, you're going, Why? Why do I have everything I need? See, Galatians 4 tells you why you have everything to, you need. Paul is going to give you a theology to understand why can you say, I'm a follower of Jesus, I have everything that I need. That's Galatians 4. So Paul starts out this uh, chapter, and it's interesting what he does. He compares two kids. He said, let's say that there's one kid that's going to get a huge inheritance. The kid's really going to be loaded someday. And there's another kid that he plays with, and his kid, now this kid's not going to have much money at all. 
He said there's no difference between these two kids. There's no difference between one kid who's entitled to thousands of dollars in the future than the other kid who has no inheritance whatsoever. And God said that's what a lot of you, are, a lot of, what a lot of you act like. You look like you compare your life to that of a slave and you say, well, there's really no difference. See, what the child that's going to be an heir to a lot of money has no idea when they're young because, well, they have to live under the guardianship of adults. You're going to tell them what to do, when to go to bed, when to get up. But then what God says in this verse, he says, but at just the right time, you're going to come into a full knowledge of your inheritance. You see, God was speaking into the Roman Empire at that time, into the Roman culture of the day, because according to Roman culture of the day, children who grew up in their family home, there would be a day that their father would determine that they come from being, uh, that they would come into their inheritance, or that they would come into the fullness of being an adult. So there was a, there was a ritual that they would do of the Roman culture, that when a little boy or a little girl got to the age determined by the father, that they would go through a family ritual, and maybe the little girl would give up a toy and then she would become an adult or the boy would give up his toy and then he would become an adult so that's what they did in the culture so jesus is using that as an illustration saying you know how y'all do this like you have these little rituals when the dad of the family says okay on, on this day this joey will become an adult you know what that's like so paul's saying god does the same thing with you that there is a day in your life that you're going to come to a knowledge of the fullness of everything that you have coming to you that there is a day that you are going to understand the rich inheritance that you have coming. And it's going to day, the day that you're going to set you free in so many ways because you're going to realize the goodness that God has for you. And what Paul is telling the church, the, telling the people at that time, the day that you're going to understand that is a day when you really understand what this adoption is all about. See, back in the Roman Empire, there, there was no adoption protocol in, in, the, in the Old Testament culture for, to, for God to say he's going to adopt you as his children. That didn't happen in the Old Testament. This is a whole New Testament principle simply because you read what we just read and, and Galatians talked about a person had to be rescued from the law before they could be adopted. So now that Jesus is on scene, now that Jesus is on scene declaring to people that he can rescue from the law, so God's going to come in, Jesus is going to come in, and he's going to teach this whole principle of adoption that is going to set people free. See, in the Roman Empire, they understood adoption. They all understood adoption very, very well because unfortunately in the Roman Empire, they also understood abandoning your children. See, in the Roman Empire, if you gave birth to a child, and if you didn't like that child, you could kill it, you could sell it as a slave, or you can abandon it to a pile with a bunch of other babies and hopefully somebody might come along and want your child. Part of the Roman Empire culture of that day was, you're going to have a baby, you don't know what you're getting, you couldn't predict what you're getting, so when the baby was born and you're a little bit disappointed, eh, you can give it up. So the custom of that day was after a baby was born, the midwife would deliver the baby and she would set the baby on the ground. And if the father of the family decided, oh, I like that baby, he would pick that baby up and then the baby would become part of that family. But if the father was like, nah, don't really like that baby, maybe it was the wrong gender, maybe it was the wrong size, or maybe the child was born with an obvious disability, the father would leave it on the ground. And either that baby would die because nobody was going to take care of that baby, or somebody would come and sell that baby, or they would bring it into these different locations throughout the Roman Empire, and people could come up and pick up that child. Basically, to be born by your biological parents was incredibly risky. 
Because what if there was something wrong with you? Your parents could abandon you. See, the Roman Empire law made provision for people to abandon their own children if they didn't like their child or if it maybe doesn't, wasn't cute enough or the wrong gender. But in the Roman Empire, there was also a law that said if you adopt a child, you're adopting that child for life. It was harder that an adopted child in the Roman Empire actually had more privilege than a biological child born. It was a remarkable what the Roman Empire did because what the Roman Empire said was this. They said, look, if you're going to adopt a child, that means you know exactly what you're getting. You know the blemishes, you know the scars, you know the gender, you know the size, you know the shape, because they could, parents could even give up their, their 12-year-old if they got sick of their 12-year-old. So the Roman Empire law came up and said, no, you know exactly what you're getting. So you know what you're getting. There's four, there's four requirements of adoption in the Roman Empire. Requirement number one, once you adopt a child, it's yours forever. You can't give that child up. You can't disown that child. You can't get frustrated with that child in the future and say, eh, I can give it back. No. Once you adopt, it's yours for life. Second principle was the adopted child would receive a brand new identity. Everything from the past is gone. Every prior commitment, every prior responsibility, every prior debt that the child may have accumulated is now gone. That adopted child is going to go with a new free, clean slate with a new family. And the third responsibility is that the child would take on rights and responsibilities within the home. And the fourth requirement is that the concept of inheritance was, begins immediately. The adopted child, when it enters into the new family, would start receiving their inheritance immediately. A biological child would have to wait until the parents die to get their inheritance. But an adopted child, immediately they start to receive their inheritance. So when Jesus and his disciples are going around the Roman Empire and they're talking about God adopts you as his children, that's radical news. First of all, it's radical because never, nobody ever heard that God's your father who adopts you as children. And second, when you hear that God is going to adopt you, that means he is pretty serious on his love and compassion for you. Because if he adopts you, he can't give you up. If he adopts you, you start getting your inheritance right now. If he adopts you, that means he knows exactly what he's getting and he can't be disappointed in the future and turn you back. That's the privilege of being adopted. That God, like the law in the Roman Empire, he knew exactly what he was getting. And when he signed you up to adopt you, that meant he is in it to the end. That he is in it to see a person get healed, restored, delivered, set free. That is what adoption is all about. That is love and that is compassion. That once God picks you, he's not going to let you go. How I many of you think about that? That's a remarkable that God's using the illustration of adoption in the Roman Empire. God's kind of on the hook for a lot. If God's going to say, I'm going to adopt you as my children, that means he's taking a whole lot of responsibility because he knows that the requirement is set high. He set the bar really high for himself. God cannot abandon you because he signed up for this. 
Now, you could be the prodigal son, and you can go off on your own, but none of you want to do that. God is not going to abandon you. God knew what he got into when he adopted you as his child, so that means he's required to see you restored. That's God's responsibility. No different than the adoptive parents back in the Roman culture. They knew what they were getting into. They had to pledge to seeing the person become what they're supposed to be. See, that's why one of the most powerful words in the Old Testament is the Hebrew word for compassion. Look what Deuteronomy 30 verse 3 says in the message translation. This is God's promise to us. God, your God, will restore everything you lost. He'll have compassion on you. He'll come back and pick up the pieces from all the places where you've been scattered. That's God's promise. That's what this adoptive dad is stuck doing. He's going to go pick up all the broken pieces of your life and bring them back together. That is the message of the gospel. That is the message that we have to our community, our message to our family and friends. <laughs> that God will find the scattered pieces of your life and bring them back together again in wholeness. See, when the word, when the word, the Hebrew word for compassion, when it's a verb, it means deep affection and mercy. It means to protect from all harm. That's the word compassion, to protect from all harm. Now, when the word, that, that, the word rashad, the com, com, compassion in the Hebrew, when it's used as a noun, it means a womb, a mother's womb it's referring to. That's God's compassion. He's going to show you compassion as if a mother carrying her own child is going to show deep and compassion. And that's the beauty of the promise of God. God could have used any illustration in the Bible, but he chose the word adoption so that we would understand his commitment to us. See, also the good news about adoption is God knows exactly why you are the way you are. He knows exactly what triggers you. He knows exactly what leads to your temptation. He knows exactly every problem that you have. And therefore, by coming in as adoptive parent, he says, I'm going to help you work that out. As I said earlier in my message, some people just don't feel valuable. You can hear this message over and over, but it's hard to assimilate the fact that God is a good father. And sometimes it's hard to simulate that God actually wants to do that for you because so many people deal with unwanted behavior. And so often when we see that unwanted behavior in your life, we just can't reconcile the fact that a good, good father would want to come into a relationship with you and help set you free. Instead, we're like the man I talked about, you think you have to do it on your own. See, people often wonder, how are you going to get set free? It's often when you find your grove of trees. When you find the grove that God has called you to live in and you have people you can do life with and you can start talking about your life and talking about your story. See, part of being a church and part of being a community is listening to other people and listening to people's stories and asking questions to help people process their own pain and their own discomfort and their own anxiety. See, if people are want to be free, they need to be seen. See, it's interesting that in the, in the Old Testament, here God had this perfect relationship with Adam, and what did God say? It's not good enough. It's not good enough, just Adam and God. 
He needed people to be with him. And sometimes God needs people to be in our life so that we can be seen by him. One of the biggest needs of people is to be seen. And the best way to be seen is when you share your life and you share your story with other people. Even the hard parts and even the difficult parts and even the ugly parts, that is a way you find transformation. And that's the way people find wholeness. But you have to do it in your grove. You got to find the people that you're connected with, the people that you know will love and care for you. And that's why as we reimagine what church looks like as we move forward after COVID, one of our, one of our, one of our, one of the culture of our church needs to be that of love and acceptance, but that of deep compassion, that we would show the compassion like Christ, that no matter what a person has done or is doing, that we are there like the adoptive parents to show love and mercy. See, Paul ends that section of Scripture in Galatians 4, In verse 6, I want to read it again, and it says, Because we are his children, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, prompting us to call out, Abba, Father. Now you are no longer a slave, but God's own child. And since since you are his child, God has made you an heir. That's why we can say, as followers of Jesus, we have every single thing that we need. Because when God adopted us, we became his son. He filled us with the Holy Spirit. And suddenly, we are entitled to every bit of inheritance that God has for us now. We don't have to wait till death to get our blessings of eternity. But God has blessings for us right now. And that's God's plan for us, his future for us, and his promise for us. So let's just pray that we can all receive the fullness of that promise, but also that we would be as ambassadors to communicate to the world that you have a good, good father that loves you and that you have a good, good father that's adopted you and that you have a good, good father that wants to see your restoration. So Father, I thank you for today. I thank you for bringing us here. And God, we thank you that you are a good father and that you do love us and that you have compassion for each one of us. God, I pray that we would receive the fullness of your promise that we are your children and that we are no longer slaves and that we are heirs for the fullness of the riches and the promises that you have for us. God, I pray today that this message would sink in deeply. Lord, even as we sing this song, may may this message transform our lives in the scriptures as well. And God, I pray that you would use us to communicate this message to a world that is suffering, that is hurting, that is marginalized, and that is discouraged. God, I pray you'd empower us today with your Holy Spirit, even as we sing this song. In Jesus' name, amen.